We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. When does human life begin? Does it start with conception or does it begin with the first breath? On today's show, I'm going to respond to the abortionist claim that the Bible teaches human life does not begin until the infant draws his first breath. Is that true? I'm Dr. Everett Piper and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thanks for listening in. Today's topic is, again, abortion. Pro-choice, pro-life. This debate is very, very aggressive in our culture right now, specifically because of the Dobbs case and how our entire nation is waiting with bated breath, no pun intended with regard to the introduction of the show, but we are all waiting. We're waiting anxiously for the Supreme Court ruling. If you're pro-life, you're praying that the Supreme Court justices that have already shown their cards by virtue of this leaked document to be leaning in favor of putting abortion, the decision on abortion, back to the states. Basically, the judges are showing that they believe in federalism and that this issue should have never been co-opted by nine justices in black robes, that it should have always been left at the state level, so that local communities, Oklahoma, Texas, Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, Arkansas, New York, California, so that all of the people in those various respective states could debate this issue and make decisions accordingly. That's what the Supreme Court is essentially saying. So everything you're hearing about them uh, going to outlaw abortion, that's not true. That's just not true. That's not the decision they're going to make. They're going to punt. They're going to kick it back to the states. So if you're pro-life, the battle isn't over. You're still going to have to argue for the dignity of the human life, the dignity of a little boy and a little girl at the youngest ages. You're still going to have to argue and defend their right to live in your local communities. And if you live in a pro-life state, then you're going to be celebrating some victories. If you live in a pro-death, a pro-abortion state like New York or California, your work is far from over. That's just a fact legally. So don't let the left even waste five seconds of your time by telling you that this this ruling is going to outlaw abortion. It clearly will not. But all of that said, all of this anxiety that we're experiencing culturally right now is fueled by the pro-life, pro-choice. Pro-life, pro-death. Pro-life, pro-abortion. Pro-baby, pro-abortion argument. That's what's going on right now. And I want to set the context by kind of uh, reviewing something I said last week, but I'm going to do it uh, in a little different way. I'm going to ask you the question, is a baby human? I I just want you to think of that. Is a baby human? And then I'm going to respond to this objection that I've received from some leftists that follow me on Facebook, where they're mocking my position, and if you're pro-life, your position, by saying, well, your own Bible, your own Bible says that you don't become a human being until 
you take your first breath. I mean, you guys need to read your Bible because it teaches you that Adam didn't become a human being. He didn't even have life until he took his first breath. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Let's take a break, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. We're going to cover the question, when does human life begin, and is a baby human? I'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. So let's deal with the first question here. Is a baby human? So think about this in the context of asking a few, I don't know if they're rhetorical questions, they're just basic questions. Do we still believe in science? Do we believe in biology? Do we believe in the objective reality of what it means to be a human being? Or do we believe that those in power, you know, the people in Washington, D.C., or Oklahoma City, or Sacramento, or the European Union, whoever it is that you fancy uh, being the most powerful influence over you and your culture, maybe it's, Jeff, maybe it's Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, or Bezos, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's George Soros, but put whoever you want in that category of the powerful. Do you believe that those people in power have the right to subjectively impose their definition of human life on the powerless, those that don't have that much money, that much political clout, and that much influence? So do you believe in science, biology? Do you believe in the objective reality of the human being? and Or do you believe that the powerful can define humanity, human life, for the powerless? That's the question I want you to be thinking about as we go through a lot of what I'm going to say in the next few minutes. So the fundamental questions that are before the Supreme Court uh, with regard to Dobbs versus Jackson, which is the case in question right here, uh, these are the questions, I think. I think that's what they should be contemplating as they consider their final ruling. Science, biology, objective reality of the human being, powerful versus the powerless. I think the answers to these questions are the first thing. You know, we've talked about first things over and over and over again on this show. First things, you got to get the first question right or everything thereafter is going to be wrong. So defining the human being is the starting point of everything that follows is a way to a different way to say we've got to get the first thing right and if we fail to define the human being properly if we fail at this first thing it's going to impede any meaningful any meaningful discussion of justice and righteousness the meaning of human life and human worth and human happiness life liberty and the pursuit of happiness the pursuit of purpose if you can't define the first thing properly i.e. what it means to be human then righteousness, justice, human worth, human value, human happiness are meaningless terms. I mean, it's just a joke. I've talked to you before about how M. Scott Peck has called the issue of lying to ourselves, if we get the first thing wrong, if we lie about the first thing, it's called the diabolical human mind. If we lie about first things, Graham Walker calls it the pathology of the intellect. If we lie to ourselves, lie about reality, lie about everything. St. Augustine called it the fantastica fornicatio, the prostitution of the mind. So here's, here's my point. The biggest deception, the biggest deception of our time is perhaps this, this idea that we have the right to define what it means to be human, that the strong have the right to define humanity, human existence for the weak, and to tell 
some people that they don't like that they're less than human. Okay, less than human. That's quoting Nick Cannon with regard to his view on critical theory. Hannah Nicole Jones, if you don't have enough melanin in your skin, you're less than human. The Third Reich, Nazis, defined Jews as being less than human. Radical Islam today actually teaches its children that Jews are descendants of apes and pigs. I mean, these, this is where we, we are right now. The KKK defined black people as less than human. I mean, when we give power to the powerful to define humanity, it doesn't end well. I mean, that's a pretty clear lesson of history, right? So when any civilization, any civilization ignores the definition, the objective definitions of humanity, that civilization is lost. Again, antebellum slavery owners defined blacks as less than human, Hitler's Third Reichs, Jews less than human, radical Islam, likewise Jews are descendants of apes and pigs. Um, Dehumanization of the human being is a sin that leads to a lot of other sins, if not all other sins. It's the height of arrogance. It's, It's the original sin, really, because the powerful are claiming the status of God to define everything, even the human being. Now, I quoted a passage to you last week from my book, Grow Up, and I want you to listen to it again here. It's this passage where I'm dealing with the definition of things and how we use words to communicate what we think is important. I'm using words right now. You're listening to me. These words are entering your mind. You're hearing them in an objective fashion. Otherwise, I would just be speaking gibberish. This would be a waste of time. Um, Words have definitions. A pony can't be a fish, and a fish can't be a chicken. The meaning of words must be objective and predictable and, and enduring, unchangeable. If they're not, you couldn't hear this sentence. You couldn't hear what I'm saying and have any hope of understanding anything that I've said. The very nature of speaking, of reading, of writing, of communicating as a human being assumes definitional clarity. Otherwise, our normal daily efforts of communication would become impossible. It'd be like trying to play football without a field or a ball or rules or any understanding of what football means. It's just it's crazy to put yourself in a category of suggesting that this, these things don't mean anything, that we can just make it up as we go. So when it comes to a dictionary, facts matter, not your feelings. I said this in my book, you might feel like red is a number, but it's not. You might feel like two plus two equals green, but it doesn't. You might feel like dogs are quarter horses and your Labrador retriever can lay eggs, but she won't. So your feelings don't change the facts about what truly is. Definition matters. Our delusions don't. So what's that have to do with today's show? Well, we can pretend that a living baby is akin to a wart or a mole, but that doesn't make it so. We can tell ourselves that an infant sucking its thumb, responding to light, and recoiling from pain is little more than a cancerous tumor, but that doesn't make such lies become truth. We can act as if a functioning brain and a beating heart don't matter, but my denial and your denial of that doesn't change the facts. A human being is a human being. If it walks like a duck, it's a duck. Pretending 
a beautiful thoroughbred is a hog for the slaughter is evidence that you're insane. Not It's not evidence of your wisdom. So here's my point. The left's hell-bent determination to ignore humanity, to ignore the humanity of a fully functioning child is, is evil. It's simply evil. It's arrogant. It's selfish. It's sinful. It's sinful at its core. It's insane. It's butchery for the sake of convenience. I, none of the stuff that's going on in our culture right now is about a woman's right to choose. That's not what it's about. It's, all of this is about a child being a human being and having the right to live. You get my point? At the end of the day, this, is, this isn't about Roe versus Wade. It's, it's about good versus evil. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne again, a quote I shared a couple weeks ago, I believe. Definitions so innocent and powerless as they are, as standing in a dictionary, how potent for good and evil they become in the hands of one who knows how to manipulate them. This whole debate is about the manipulation of words, of meaning, down to the point where we are manipulating the definition of whether or not you are fully human. The powerful deciding for the powerless whether or not they have the right to human life. That's really what we're discussing right now. Well, so we have to decide when does human life begin? Well, one of the responses I've received is uh, from the left, from some guys that troll me periodically. One is uh, out of this Facebook page titled Tulsa Rhinos. And it's, it's, um, it's a page where they're fighting against rhinos, at least they think they are. But it has some people on the left that have joined this Facebook page. I guess they're suggesting that a conservative such as me, or if you're a conser- conservative and listening to the show, that you're Republican in name only because you're allowing your uh, fundamentalism. I don't know. I don't know what they're trying to say. The, the, we're, we're the ones co-opting the Republican Party, and we're the ones who are Republican in name only. So I guess if you're pro-life and you believe that a baby's life should be protected, regardless of its age, regardless of how dependent it is on the parents or not, uh, that it's a human being and nobody has the right to take its life. Um, well, they say, you, you, don't you know that your own Bible, your own Bible says that life begins with breath? Now, what are they talking about? Well, they're talking about Genesis 2-7. That's where they're going with this. They say that in Genesis 2-7, where God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and the breath of life was therefore breathed into Adam, that he became a human being at that time. So Genesis 2-7 does say he breathed into his nostrils, his being Adam's, the breath of life, and it was then that he, the man, became a living being. All right? Oh, they've got us. Trump Trump card, right? They win the game. No, no. <laughs> That's not the case. Okay, so how do you respond to this? Is the Bible, by virtue of Genesis 2-7, where it does say that God breathed into him, Adam, and Adam became a human being at the point, at, at, at that point, at the point of inhaling, taking his first breath. Does that tell us that every human being becomes human only at the point 
of that first inhalation of air. No. No. Okay, why? Well, here's, here's a reason why. Again, context is king. Scripture, the Bible, okay, it's interesting, number one, that the leftists want to throw the Bible out when, when, it's, when it's convenient, but then they disparage the Bible at every other turn. So they're using the Bible now to try to make a point, but yet they condemn the Bible when it comes to, well, let's just say sexual morality, homosexuality, transgenderism, um, selfishness, uh, greed, etc. They ignore the Bible on those things, but... Oh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, the exclusivity of the Christian faith, that uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. In other words, words, Jesus is the only way, and syncretism is a lie. It's a false religion. Oh, they ignore the Bible on all of that. Oh, you're just a fundamentalist. You're you're a Bible thumper. But then they pull out the Bible when they want to make their point about the origin of human life. And they quote Genesis 2-7, as I've just shared with you. Well, it ignores the fact that in the rest of the Bible, okay, it's made very clear. For example, in Genesis 2.24, just a few verses later, God says, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Well, what does that imply? That the DNA of a male joining with the DNA of a female becomes one flesh, a new and wholly unique human being. God didn't say in Genesis 2.24 that here's the mold for baby boys and baby girls. Here's, uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out and take three pounds of dirt and six cups of water and, and put it into this mold and form it into the shape of a human being, and then you need to breathe into its nostrils and it'll come alive. No, that's not what God said in terms of perpetuating the human race. No. So the point is, the Genesis 2-7 is a descriptive passage of Scripture where it's describing how God created Adam. He formed him. He formed them and then breathed into this form the breath of life, the breath of God, and therefore Adam came alive. But from that point forward, there's no description in, in Scripture. There's no description in Scripture as to that ever happening again. That's not how human beings, that's not how God charged humanity to continue to create new human beings. No, he he actually created this thing called the two shall become one, male and female, man and woman, getting married and procreating a new child. Okay? That's through DNA. That's how it happens. We don't breathe into uh, a mold of dirt, of clay, that has the shape of a boy or a girl. We don't breathe into it and say, voila, there's another human being because it has the breath of life. So to prove this point further, let's go to more Bible verses. Uh, they're the ones, they're the ones that brought up the Bible, Genesis 2-7, and therefore I think it's very fair for us to respond with the Bible. Um, it, it, sidebar, many pro-lifers don't use Bible verses to defend their view. They use science. They say something that has a beating heart is alive. Something that has a functioning brain is alive. Something that sucks its thumb and moves and kicks is alive. Something that responds to pain and responds to light and hears its mother's voice and reacts to it is alive. Something that has lungs and a liver and kidneys is alive. I mean, that's a scientific argument. That's an argument from biology. That's an argument from 
physiology and genetics and DNA. I didn't mention any Bible verses at all in the last couple sentences there, right? You could be an atheist and agree with me. In fact, if you're an honest atheist, you should agree with me that something that has a functioning heart, a functioning brain, something that moves and kicks, has a functioning liver, has functioning kidneys and functioning lungs, something that sucks its thumb and responds to light, responds to pain, and hears a voice and reacts accordingly, something that does all of these things biologically, physiologically, genetically, is alive. Is alive. Adam wasn't doing any of those things when he was a lump of clay. Okay? Descriptive literature of how God created Adam. That is not evidence of how humanity continues to perpetuate itself. Proof scripturally? Again, they brought up scripture, so let's go to scripture. Psalm 139.13 says this, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. So we are formed and covered in our mother's womb. The psalmist is telling us that the baby, the baby is a human being that has been formed by God and is covered, protected in his or her mother's womb. Jeremiah 1, verses 4 through 5. I'll say that again. Jeremiah 1, verses 4 through 5 says this, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before you were born, I knew you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So before he was born, Jeremiah was known by the Lord. He was ordained by the Lord to be a prophet to the nations. It wasn't after he inhaled his first breath before he was born. His, his identity, his humanity, the fact that he was a prophet was known by God before he was even born. So you've got Psalm, you've got Jeremiah. Now let's go to Luke. Now this is a very interesting passage that if you want to argue for human life only beginning at the first breath, then this one just destroys your argument. Scripturally, I think it's destroyed biologically, physiologically. I think I've already destroyed that. If you're a scientist and you truly believe in science, then set scripture aside. Just deal with the reality of a human being um, having a functioning heart, functioning brain, functioning arms, functioning legs, toes and fingers, responding to light, responding to pain, biologically, physiologically, then you've just made the case. I've just made the case that this is a human being. This is a living thing. All right, but let's go back to Scripture, biblically. Luke 1, verses 39 through 44. Now, this is after the angel Gabriel came to Mary to tell her that she would be the mother of the Messiah. Okay, but this is what it says. Now, Mary rose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the baby that she was carrying leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the baby that I'm carrying leaped in my womb for joy. All right. Now, if you believe that life begins at the first breath, how in the world can you set aside what's obvious in this scripture? Number one, Mary 
and Elizabeth are both carrying babies. They're both pregnant. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and Mary is pregnant with Jesus. Okay, Elizabeth is a few months ahead of Mary in terms of when John is going to be born. So Mary visits Elizabeth, and the baby, John the Baptist, that she's carrying, leaps in her womb for joy when he hears Mary's voice. All right? So not only does he have functioning arms and eyes and ears and toes and fingers, not only does he have a functioning brain and a beating heart, but he leaps for joy when he hears Mary's voice because he knows that Mary is carrying the Messiah, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. He knows that his purpose in life to be a prophet of this very thing, of this very thing, is being confirmed as the result of Mary coming and visiting his mother, Elizabeth. That's what this verse says. That, that's what's happening right here. John the Baptist recognizes Mary's voice, the mother of God, Mary. She rec- he recognizes her voice, and he recognizes that the Messiah is right there in the room with him, and he leaps for joy. Elizabeth is confirming it, and Mary celebrates it. Now, if you're telling me that life begins at breath, explain that one away, biblically. Again, they're the ones that brought up the Bible, Genesis 2-7, so I'm responding with the Bible. Context, context is always king. I've said that a thousand times over on this show. If you're going to use the Bible, use it in context. Understand the difference between prescriptive literature and descriptive literature. Understand, understand the difference between prophecy and parable and poems and prose. Understand what you're talking about and deal with all of the Bible, not just a verse that you like, like Genesis 2-7, to make your point, to justify the killing of other human beings. Oh, and by the way, the Bible explicitly says this, you shall not murder, Exodus 20, 13, that we have no right to take the life of an innocent human being, that we cannot do that. And as it's been said over and over again, you you can make a biblical argument against abortion. I just did. The Bible teaches that it's wrong to take a life of an innocent human being. Abortion takes that life that life of an innocent, innocent child. The Bible teaches that abortion is wrong. That's clear. But you don't need that as your main argument. You can make that argument scientifically, biologically, physiologically. Philosophically, you can make that argument. But if these guys want to bring the Bible into play and say, well, your own Bible teaches this. You guys need to read your Bible. Well, bring it on. Bring it on. No, no. The Bible never says that all human life begins with an inhalation of air. It does not say that. It describes how God created Adam. And to make the claim that all human life that follows thereafter is created in the same way would be to suggest that every female in the history of humanity was created from the rib of a male. Obviously, that's insane. That's not true. Human life begins with conception. That's the way God ordained it. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.